Very cool. Billy and Christine are not here, but I wanted to announce that they had their little baby boy who was born on Friday, Josiah David Cones. Friday evening yet. Very, very cool. Six, yes. Greg, if you can see him, you can pass on our claps to them for you. And so, uh, I'm very excited. Six pounds, two ounces. So, tiny baby, but uh, very, very cool. And mom's doing good? Awesome. All right, if you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 as we finish up uh, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 48. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll go and write to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 48 this morning. The title of my message is Matters of the Heart, part 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together. Time in your word, time in your presence, worshiping you, uh, hearing from you, Lord, as you speak to our hearts through the study of your word. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that we would apply these truths to our lives, Lord, that we would open up our hearts and let you uh, take your Holy Spirit sword and, and touch our hearts in ways that we may need to change or need to be encouraged or exhorted. Whatever it is, Lord, we want you to have free reign in our hearts, minds this morning as we look to your word. We pray that you're glorified. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to turn their hearts over to you, to surrender their lives to you, they're not born again. We pray, Lord, that you'd especially touch their lives today and that they would see their need for you. Thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Murder, lust, love, hate, divorce, broken vows, revenge. No, I'm not talking about a daytime soap opera. This is all in our text this morning. See, Jesus has been dealing with our hearts, what's happening on the inside where, where no one sees. He began, if you would look at verse 20, by saying this, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Those were radical words at this time. Because at that time, people thought the scribes and the Pharisees were the guys that had it all together. They were the religious ones. They were the ones, you know, you, you, know, you don't think of them today like that. You hear the word Pharisee and you think of a, the word hypocrite. But that's not the way it was thought of back then. See, Jesus is saying here that they, they you know, that... that you know, your, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, they were looked on as being very righteous, but as an outward righteousness. Jesus is saying there needs to be an inward righteousness. And we've been talking about the matters of the heart. We looked at it last week. We're going to continue it this week as well. So when he says that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, here's what he means. Their righteousness was based on works. Their righteousness was not real. Their righteousness was a self-righteousness. Jesus is saying, that's not good enough. You need real righteousness. And that's given to you when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's called imputed righteousness. It's you, you placed, uh, that is placed into your spiritual bank account as a result of you being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying, I want to get to your hearts this is the bottom line. Your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. And now he lays out what that actually means here in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. It takes chapters 5 through 7 for it. Jesus is teaching us that God isn't, 
just concerned about our outward actions, but he's concerned about the conditions of our hearts to make sure they're right. I read a story about a church that held a competition to find the most high-principled, sober, well-behaved local citizen. Among the entries came one that read, I don't smoke, I don't touch alcohol, I don't gamble, I'm faithful to my wife and never look at another woman. I'm hardworking, quiet and obedient. I never go to the movies. I go to bed early every night, rise with the dawn. I attend chapel regularly every Sunday without fail. I've been like this for the past three years, two months, 27 days, just waiting till I get released. You see, it's not the outward action only that God cares about, but the heart. Because as you grow in your walk with the Lord, and you gain victory over sinful areas of your life, you've stopped certain practices that are, that are sinful. But then the danger comes in when you begin to think, well, I've arrived, I no longer do this or that. But in all actuality, you've just begun. Because God wants to get past the actions, He wants to get into your heart. And so beginning in verse 21, Jesus gives us a series of six statements really to finish up chapter 5. These six statements are what called, is, what, is what's called comparative statements. That is, Jesus would say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And so six comparisons of truth that the disciples are taught compared to what Jesus declares as truth. These are going to be our six points this morning if you're taking notes. And we'll look at them. Number one will be murder. Number two, adultery slash lust. Number three, divorce. Number four, oaths and promises. Number five, revenge. Number six, love and hate. As I said, it sounds like a, a soap opera, but God's going to cover this for us and, and show us what this means. So look, let's look at number one, murder. Now, I know we looked at it briefly last week, but let's go over it again. Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. See, Jesus is saying, don't be so proud that you haven't done the deed when the seed is still in your heart. Yeah, you never pulled the trigger. You don't have powder burns. Metal filings aren't on your hands. But your anger has blown up your wife and kids. You shot back at your boss or your co-worker. Jesus is saying, hey, examine your heart. Because anger, not just murder, can be sin. You know, anger is like that the gasoline pumps you purchase, you know, at the pumps. It comes in different grades, different octane levels, various intensities. There's that suppressed anger, or what calls what Jesus calls anger without a cause. It's that illicit anger that we hold on to to nurture and let, let smolder beneath the surface. Then there's the explosive anger. It's an anger that lashes out and, and shouts raka. Verse 22, that word was Aramaic, means slang for empty-headed and idiot. It is, it's, it's an insult. Then there's a premeditated anger. We looked at last time. You fool was more than just a simple insult. It was a calculated, deliberate attempt to be vengeful. It was character assassination. And then verse 23, we looked at the solution. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar. In other words, here's the first step in dealing with anger. Be in the habit of coming to the altar. Worship God. See, His presence has a way of diffusing and disarming anger that's in our hearts. And while you're at the altar, Jesus said, if you remember that your brother has something against you, if God brings it to your mind, you have this, this problem with, a, with, with someone, someone, an unresolved conflict, leave your gift there before the altar and go and make it right. In other words, it's a mockery to seek harmony with God while you still have, have a disharmony and problems with other people around you, with, with, with your friend. 
First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Listen, life is too short to be angry at someone or to have someone angry at you. Pick up the phone, write a letter, apologize for your part in the drama. Do it today. Well, this brings us to where we left off last week as Jesus takes it to the next step in dealing with our hearts. As he's looking at our hearts, he now warns us about adultery and lust. And that's point number two. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I think every guy in this room knows it's one thing just to look. Oh, that's a pretty girl. Yep, she's a pretty girl. Then you move on. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about seeing that person, but then allowing your mind to go to the wrong place. As it's been said, it's not the first look that gets you in trouble. It's the second and it's the third. It's a look to lust. It's a, it's a lingering look. It's when the imagination takes over the image. In fact, that word for lust in verse 28 is the Greek word that describes a constant stare with the purpose of lusting. It's the kind of stare that says, I want to fulfill this, this evil desire that I have and I'm going to keep looking at you until I, I fulfill that. Someone put it this way, promiscuity begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. I think a great example of that is King David. Remember him up on his patio roof? He happened to notice a very beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing herself, you know, appropriately named Bathsheba. And she's out there. And, and uh, you know, I, I kind of think that she knew what was going on. I think that David, she knew that David had probably had a really good view of her. I think she was partly uh, to, to, to have responsibility in, in what happened here. I mean, she did cooperate with David. She could have turned him on the other way. But David saw her. Now, he could have turned away from it. But instead, he acted on it. And, and we know how the story unfolded. He had her brought up to his chambers. They had sex together. She was pregnant. And then it, instead of just coming clean and admitting what he did was wrong, he wanted to cover it all up. So he brings her husband, Uriah, back from the battles, tries to convince him to sleep with her to make, the, make it so that the child's his. But he refuses to do so. So then he then sends him to the front line to which, you know, he was killed in battle, effectively had him murdered. David then marries Bathsheba and he thinks everything is good. I covered up my sin. It's all good to go. And then Nathan shows up, blows his cover and confronts him and says, you have sinned against God. And tragically, that child died after it was born. It was just one big mess. But it all started with that one lustful look. And so we need to think about that. That's why Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a woman. Better translation of that would be to not to look lustfully upon a woman. Again, you can't help the first look. It's the second and the third that will get you in trouble. And then there are many times when you actually have to literally turn away. I mean, today's culture, society today, I mean, you, you be walking at the mall and, and, and approaching you with some gorgeous girl or some great looking guy and, and your mind immediately goes to the wrong place and you go, man, I, I, I can't just look away. I got to walk away. I got to I mean, go into this store. And then you walk into Victoria's Secret. You go, I don't want to be in here. You go over there. And, uh, oh, no, what am I doing? You just got to turn away, <laughs> turn away, find your way of escape. You know, maybe you're watching television and something comes up on the screen. You know, it's going to stimulate lust. You need to stop it. You know, there's a little control. It's called a remote control. And there's a button on that remote control. I think it's red in most of them. It's called a power button. And when you press it, it turns off the TV. So that image, man, just, just click it. Turn it off. Nothing got on it anyway. 
Listen, don't, don't go on your computer and just Google random words and click whatever site pops up. You'll have images appearing on your computer th- the screen that you don't want to see, you've never seen before. Be careful. Guard your thoughts. Guard what you expose yourself to. That's the idea that's being conveyed here. Now, a lustful heart also calls for drastic action. Look at verses 29 through 30. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you than for one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. I shared this a few weeks back. I wonder how Jesus might rephrase that today. If your tongue causes you to talk about people behind their backs, grab some pliers and pull it out. If your ear causes you to listen to gossip, lop it off. If your foot causes you to break the speed limit, take a hacksaw to it. If your fingers cause you to surf sleazy websites, snip them off. So I don't think that, that Jesus is advocating we start lopping off parts of our body. You know, if we took it literally, there wouldn't be much left of us at all. The point being is, take sin seriously and take whatever drastic steps are necessary to remove sin-causing things from your life. I read a story about a college football coach by the name of Eric Russell that wanted to make a point about the dangers of drugs. And he arranged for a couple of good old boys from the country to, to burst into a routine team meeting and throw this hissing six-foot-long rattlesnake on the table in front of the squad. When all these guys screamed and scattered and Russell recalls, I told them, when cocaine comes into a room, you're not nearly as apt to leave as when the rattlesnake comes in, but they'll both kill you. Listen, what length will you go in order to stop a particular sin? Maybe it's a particular habit. I read a story that Pastor David Hawking tells about a man who came up to him and told him he wanted to be prayed for to stop smoking. And David prayed for the guy. Then he asked him, do you you have any cigarettes on you? And the guy nodded and David asked him to give him his cigarettes. And then David took him in the bathroom and flushed the cigarettes down the toilet. Then he asked the man to take him to his car. He asked him if there were any cigarettes in his car. Well, the guy knew where David was going with this and refused to tell him he really didn't want to get that serious. Not yet. Listen, I've said this before. Smoking will not send you to hell. You may just smell like you've been there, but, but it's not going to send you there. But, but maybe God is calling you to quit. I, I know it's tough. We all have different roads to walk down, different battles to be won, and different rates of growth as people and as Christians. But if we ask God to humble us, and we let him do that work in our lives, regardless of the, of the pain that request may bring, he will eventually lead us to deal with any issues in our lives that he thinks may be detrimental to us, to our relationship with him and to our relationship with each other. And the important thing is to be ready and willing to act on those issues, whatever they may be. When God makes them known to you, that you'll act on that, you'll respond to that. See, Jesus is saying, whatever it takes, deal with sin. Take drastic action. Get to the root of the problem, even though it may hurt. And I know overcoming addiction involves adopting a new mindset. Heaven has to be valued more than your vice. That's why Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Now think about this. If I wanted to pluck my eye out, I would never have the guts to do it. There's no way. It requires doctor's assistance. Likewise, let me say that some struggles with sin require outside help, accountability, support, counseling. You don't need to fight them on your own. But to see, we need to understand what's at stake. 
Jesus goes on in verse 34, it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Again, what is the source of your problem? My problem, for some, chopping off a hand may be canceling your cable, restricting your internet access, breaking off contact with certain people that, that maybe are bringing you down, changing the route that you take home from work. See, victory requires an uncompromising mindset. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit and let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. Now this brings us to our our third point and and the subject of divorce. Look at verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I think more and more people seem to forget Henry Ford's timely advice when he was asked on his 50th wedding anniversary what was the key to his marital success and longevity. He replied, just the same as in the automobile business, stick to one model. Get it? Stick to one model. All right. Divorce and remarriage. Now, when we get to chapter 19, we're going to dive into the subject of divorce a lot deeper because it's, it's... Spoken of a lot more and deeper there. But, but here, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, in Jesus' days, there were some very liberal ideas about divorce. One rabbi taught if your wife burned the toast, it was grounds for divorce, you know. But Jesus here says in verse 31, But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now understand, Jesus' whole point here is to show us that God is not in favor of divorce. Our society has gotten to the place where, where you can blink your eyes and get a divorce. And God's message to us this morning is you're getting yourself into trouble if you think that God's okay with divorce. Now, then, now does that mean that all divorce is wrong? No. Sadly, there's a couple guys, and Greg has seen them too. We go downtown on Friday nights on the GO team. There's two guys, and they hold these signs up. And the sign says, instead of saying, you know, it doesn't even say the end is near, repent. It says, if you've been divorced, you are going to hell. That's what the sign says. And they walk around. I'm thinking, okay, you know, I've tried to talk to these guys before, and you can't get through to them at all. But, but, but I think, man. First of all, your doctrine's way off. Secondly, who on earth would want to come to Christ after reading a sign like that? It's not the way to evangelize. But you see, Jesus actually gives one allowable reason for divorce, a broad word describing sexual sins. Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. The word for sexual immorality is the word pornea. It means illicit sexual intercourse, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality. We would define it as sex outside of marriage. So if the husband or wife commits sexual immorality, that is the allowance for divorce. And I might add, that frees the innocent party to remarry. If your husband or wife commits adultery and you divorce them, that does not mean you can never remarry. Jesus is clear on the exception here. There are reasons for divorce. Sexual immorality is one. In fact, Paul seems to hint to another one allowable in, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, that of abandonment. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So specifically, Paul is saying, if an unbelieving spouse leaves the marriage, then it's okay to divorce. 
And I would even go as far as to say, if a man claims to be a believer, yet is hooked on pornography, is physically abusive, and has no intention of changing, and abandons his wife, that too is definitely grounds for divorce. Now let me say this. Do these reasons mean that you must get a divorce? Absolutely not. But God himself gave us the example in the book of Hosea, where God asked the prophet Hosea to take his wife back, even after she was found guilty of prostitution. See, God desires that there's reconciliation. God desires that there should be forgiveness. But sometimes it's just not possible, and God allows divorce in those situations. And I might add, divorce is not an unforgivable sin, even if you didn't get a divorce for the right reasons. The only unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is rejecting Jesus Christ. But again, Paul has said, God has called us to peace. Now, having said that, however, we are not to use the argument of peace as an excuse to walk out of a marriage. We feel less is less than perfect. Sadly, this is a loophole Christians use all too readily, one that needs to be closed up very tightly. Oh, I'm not happy anymore. I, I, I never loved him or her. I have no peace in my home because he or she is so verbally abusive. Sorry, folks, I don't read any of any clause that gets you out of your marriage because you're not happy. I don't read any clause that gets you out of your marriage because your spouse is being verbally abusive to you. Even if your spouse is an unbeliever, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, to stick with them. Short of physical abuse, even if your marriage is tough and full of heartache, my word to you is to stay. Now, if you travel to enough counselors, you're going to find one that's going to tell you what you want to hear. They'll tell you to leave, but be careful. Far too many marriages break up due to the failure to take into account the full counsel of God. God has called us to honor our vows that we've made to each other. Which brings us to our next point. Oaths and promises or vows. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to you of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, human nature since the fall of man has always had a problem. We are at the core very dishonest people. It's who we are. We are fallen. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked, the Bible says. Now, we may call it a white lie. Uh, we may call it, you know, a discrepancy. We have all fancy words to, to dance around what it really is. But because of the tendency of human nature to be dishonest, we have seen the necessity to, to make a promise by some oath or some contract. For example, if you go to buy a new car, you know, you just can't walk into the dealership and say, I want that car. I promise I'll pay you. Let me have the keys and walk out. They'll laugh at you, you know, to, to you know, they'll laugh at you. And I'm sure they're not going to throw the keys at you. No, they're going to have you sit down. They're going to get the contract out that's 500 pages long and you're going to sign everything here and you're going to give collateral and your firstborn son and your right arm and they're going to check your credit score and they're going to make sure that you fulfill that promise. Now, in the same way contracts were drawn up during Christ's time, oaths were given. In Scripture, there are a couple of commandments regarding oaths, one out of the book of Leviticus and one out of the book of Numbers. But both of them are put together here. What I find interesting is God never told people in the Old Covenant to make an oath. He just said, if you do make an oath, make sure that you make good on that oath that you make. You you don't have to make a promise, but if if you do, make sure you keep that promise. And if you make a promise to God, you better keep it. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. 
Now, again, 2,000 years ago in Judea, it was common to hear these oaths that people would take, promises. It would sound like, well, by, the, by thy life I swear such and such, or by my head I promise this or the other thing. Now, it might kind of sound odd for us to accept, but I mean, think about when you were a kid, you know, and, and you promised to do something, and, and you know, one kid would say, you'll cross your heart, and you'll cross my heart, hope to die, stick a hundred needles in my eye. Listen, don't stick anything in your eye, okay? That's not good. Or they would say, I swear on my mother's grave. I don't want to do anything in my mom's grave. But see, this was the idea back then. These oaths that they would make, and it was a, they had a couple different types. One was a compulsory, obligatory oath, and one was a non-obligatory. The, the non-obligatory was, you know, I swear by my life or swear by my head. But the obligatory one was if, if you, you put God into the equation. You know, you, you know it, it was more of a promise. But Jesus' point is simple. You can't keep God out of any promise or transaction you make. He's in everything. If you swear by heaven, that's where he lives. That's where he hangs out. If you swear by his throne or if you swear by the earth, he props his feet up on the, on the earth, kicks back. That's his footstool, the Bible says. He made it. He owns it. If you swear by Jerusalem, well, that's the city of the great king. If you swear by your head or by your hair or by yourself, God created you. You're God's creation. So you can't keep God out of any of those promises. See, Jesus is raising the standard of verbal integrity. When you say yes, you mean yes. When you say no, you mean no. Make a promise, you stick to it. I made a promise 40 years ago next Sunday, September 9th. Told my wife I'd be with her. I'd be her husband. Richer for poor, sickness and sin, health and health until death do us part. And I plan to keep that oath. She plans to keep that oath. In fact, even I'm convinced even after we die, we don't have to part after that, that, that we'll be worshiping the Lord together in God's presence. My point is this, Jesus is raising the standard. He says, let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. It's an old saying that goes, a closed mouth gathers no feet. Think about that one. You know, I really stuck my foot in my mouth that time. I think for me, the only time I take my foot out of my mouth is to replace it with my other foot. But we need to be very careful and very sparing with our words. Don't use and say something we don't mean. And if we say it, then we mean it and we follow through with it. Mean what you say, say what you mean. I think this can, this can go to, to you know paying your bills on time. If you made an agreement, a payment plan, a certain amount each month, then make sure you honor that agreement. You've given your words, so stand by it. Well, this brings us to point number five, revenge. Look at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the, your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, this reminds me of a story about a man that was bitten by a dog. The doctor took the test and came back with, with the results and told him he has rabies. Well, the man suddenly pulled out a piece of paper and started to write. Well, the doctor said, you don't need to write a will. You're not going to die. We've got medicines that can treat rabies. The man answered, I'm not writing a will. I'm just jotting down names of people I want to bite. Get it? Revenge. Even, even the word sounds, sounds evil. Revenge, you know. See, I understand our human tendency is not an eye for an eye. It's you take one of my eyes, I'm going to take two of your eyes. It's one upmanship. You know, it, it's back to you a little bit harder than, than you hit me. Jesus is saying your love goes the opposite direction. It shows mercy rather than demanding justice. When we're attacked, God wants us to retaliate, but he wants us to retaliate in love and with love. Now let me 
say three things to what this is not saying. First, Jesus is not stripping governments of the right to rage war and defend their citizens. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is for individual believers, not for governments. Number two, secondly, Jesus isn't stripping you of your right to self-defense. If someone threatens you, it's your responsibility to defend yourself. If a guy breaks into your house to harm your family, you are allowed to take your gun out and shoot the guy. And number three, Jesus is not suggesting we become doormats. Okay, you know, just run all over me, beat me up, that's okay. Turning the other cheek doesn't mean allowing someone to repeatedly use us and abuse us. Sometimes we love someone by standing up to them. But what is Jesus saying here? Well, notice he says when someone stops you on the right cheek. Now, let's understand this is not so much about someone coming up and punching you in the face. This is more the idea of an insult that is offered. Statistics show that 90% of the population is right-handed. So how does a right-hander hit you on the right cheek? Well, they, 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 they backhand you. And in almost every culture, a backhand slap is more a deliberate insult than a violent attack. It was a demeaning and a contemptuous act. You know, our modern equivalent might be, you know, maybe someone spitting in your face. It doesn't physically hurt a person, but it's insulting. And actually, you can get really angered by it. You might want to seek revenge and attack that person. You might, you know, happen that way. You know, we, we're attacked by people using certain words to us. They say something to you and, 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 or something about someone you love. Sometimes you're attacked by a hand gesture. You know, you, you see this on the road quite frequently. I won't say what it is, but, but it has something to do with birds, and we'll leave it at that. And people are so quick to do this, are they not? They, they cut you off and then do this gesture like, like it's your fault. What is that all about? What? I mean, I'm just driving here. And when that happens, you know what you want to do. You want to get revenge, right? You just dirty look something, you know. You want to get even. Jesus is saying, don't do that. If someone comes up and they do something to offend you, Jesus is saying, if you're insulted, brush it off, turn the other cheek. Now, why don't we want to do that? Because we all say, well, I have my rights. So who are you to, to come against my rights? My right to dignity demands that you treat me with respect. And Jesus says, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever stops you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. See what happens whenever I'm insulted. You know, this wall goes up. That's it. I deserve better treatment. I'll never speak to him again. Jesus is saying, don't build that wall. Rise above it. Love is stronger than an insult. Now, this is not an easy one to live by. I think we all know that. It can be very difficult. I think even the great apostle Paul struggled with this. At one point, there was an order given to him to, 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 given to hit him in the face. And Paul turned back and said to the high priest, God will smite you, you whitewashed wall. And someone said to Paul, you speak to the high, high priest that way? And Paul said, oh, I didn't know he was a high priest. Sorry. I, I kind of think, I wasn't there. I kind of think, I mean, him being a member of the Sanhedrin, he knew who the high priest was. So I think he kind of struggled, like, like we all do, like everyone else does. But here's the point. Even if you struggle with it, the objective is to try and win the person to Christ. In fact, to prove this point, Jesus takes it a step further. Look at verse 40. He says, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Here's what Jesus is saying at the end of chapter 5. My priority needs to be my love for people, not a demand for my rights. 
And here's the question that Jesus is asking us this morning. Am I willing to give up my rights in order to show others his love? My right to dignity. Stop me on the cheek, but your insult won't stop my love. My right to possession. Take my cloak. Your soul means more than my shirt. My right to liberty. I'll walk a second mile. Your salvation is more important to me than my conveniences. A second mile might give me an opportunity to witness to you more. My right to security. I'll be generous. I'd rather you survive than me thrive. See, my right to dignity demands that you treat me with respect, but out of love and desire to see you come to Christ, I'm going to give up that right. And here Jesus is challenging our right to our possessions in verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let them have your cloak also. See, during that time, uh, the men, they wore two garments. One was an inner tunic that was like a shirt and a heavier outer cloak, which doubled as a jacket or even a bedroll. So in verse 40, Jesus isn't abolishing personal property rights in society. What he is saying to Christians is don't put possessions above or before people. See, our job isn't to die with the most stocked wardrobe closets, you know. It's to take as many people with us to heaven as we can. And if giving away a tunic or two can save a soul, then do it. Look at verse 41. Again, he says, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with them two. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, under the Roman rule, a Roman soldier had the right to recruit a civilian to carry his armor. So you might be on your way to work, late for work. A Roman soldier, centurion, would tap you on the shoulder and say, Hey, you're carrying my armor. And you were required to carry a mile or one million, the Roman mile, which was a little shorter than our mile. Now, this inconvenience really irritated the Jews. And they would count each step. And when they reached 5,280 feet, they dropped the armor and stomped off. Jesus is saying a soldier's salvation is more important than my convenience. Carry the stuff a second mile and then tell them all about God's love and grace. Love is more concerned about your salvation than my convenience. Now let me say this. You can do this at work. Instead of giving the bare minimum, give more. Now sometimes your co-workers are going to be mad at you for doing that. Hey, don't work so hard. You're making the rest of us look bad. But listen, your, your boss isn't your employer. Your, your boss is the Lord. So do it for the glory of God. Go the extra mile. Go a little bit further than what's required. Do it for the sake of the gospel to win the hearing of the person that you are trying to reach. Again, love is more concerned about salvation than than my convenience. And understand, Jesus is just not talking about how we treat our friends. He's talking about how we treat our enemies as well. And that brings us to our sixth and final point. Love and hate. Look at verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Stop there for a second. Understand the rabbis are the ones that said hate your enemies, not the Old Testament. Now, there were times that Israel defeated their enemy in battle, but it was never a matter of hate. It was a matter of justice and righteousness. But Jesus here is countering, counters the rabbis by saying in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Abraham Lincoln used to say, the only way to destroy an enemy is to turn him into a friend. I think that needs to be our attitudes. Reminds me of a story about a, from a little town in Mexico that was performing the Passion Play. It was a dramatic and, and lifelike. One of the actors uh, scheduled to play Jesus got sick right before the performance. A replacement was needed. The only guy available was this unsavory character, the, the town tough guy. And as he carried the cross to the outskirts of the town, the soldiers hit him and spit on him and cursed him. It, it was all the old boy could take. 
as they were lifting him up on the cross, he turned to one of the guys playing a Roman soldier and he whispered to him, you better run because after the resurrection, I'm going to get you. <laughs> Listen, Jesus could have had the same attitude. He could have beat up all of his enemies after the resurrection. Instead, he prayed for their forgiveness. He died to save them. See, in a sense, loving our enemies gives us the, the, the best opportunity to be like Jesus. Yeah, I think you and I both know this, that this is also the point of our greatest failures. That's why there's no way I can obey the Sermon on the Mount in my own strength. Love my enemies? You've got to be kidding. But here's what we learn. What God asks us to do, He enables us to do that. If Jesus says love your enemies, then He's going to give us that ability to do it. And He tells us why in verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rains on the just and the unjust. The world is full of, of what I call common grace. You know, God provides opportunities for everyone. Even your enemies are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do that? Or do so. It's easy to love a person who loves you, but the mark of God's love is, is to love for, have love for the unlovable. C.S. Lewis put it this way, do not waste time bothering about whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find out one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. Step out in faith. Obey God, and he'll supply the love that you need. Finally, verse 48, Jesus says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfect? Wait a minute. How can we possibly be perfect? We can't. Not, not on our own. See, that word for perfect in, in verse 48 does not imply sinless perfection. That's impossible in this life, though it is a good goal for us to strive for. That's only when God's Spirit lives through us that His perfection is seen in our lives. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live as Jesus calls us to live. See, that the Sermon on the Mount should, should drive us to the cross of Christ where we cry out for mercy. We look at our sin. We see we've fallen short. Maybe we haven't done these outward actions, but inside our hearts and our minds, we've fallen. And we need to repent. Susanna Wesley once said to her young son, John Wesley, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, and takes off the relish of spiritual things, that to you is sin. And I would say this, the best attitude towards sin is having a heart that is passionate towards God. See, again, it comes back down to this, this sermon. If your heart is committed to following Christ, if your primary reason for living is to glorify God, then it doesn't mean you, you, you'll, you'll be temptation-proof. What it means is you'll be so focused on the Lord and His goodness and His kindness that you'll keep moving forward and you'll not be going backwards. You'll lose that focus in the back. Listen, when you lose focus, when you lower your guard, when things of God are not as important to you as they once were, you know it's time to make some changes. And as we close and enter into this time of communion, maybe after looking at these things this morning, some of us need some forgiveness today. Maybe we've broken some of these commandments, these principles given to us in this sermon. This is the time to say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me to live as your child in a way that honors and glorifies you. Communion is a time to remember that Jesus died for every one of our sins, past, present, and future, that he said his blood it was sufficient to cover us from, from all of our sins to take the guilt away. 
And the only prerequisite to participating in communion with us is that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus this morning, I say don't wait any longer. Give your life to Him. Surrender your heart to Him. Partake of communion with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, your love and grace that you give to us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Lord, your word says if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We thank you, Lord, that when we come to the cross, when we come to you, when we confess our sins, Lord, your word says you put our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west, Lord. Lord, we thank you for that. And as we come to the communion table, Lord, let's examine our hearts. If there's anything in there that, that we need to deal with, Lord, we want to open it up to you this, this morning. Lord, touch our hearts in areas of our lives. Lord, help your, your word through your Holy Spirit to do that surgery in our hearts that we need and that we would respond rightfully, Lord. That we would seek your forgiveness and we would seek to walk uprightly before you. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to make a commitment to you, Lord, that they would do so now, that they would just commit their hearts and lives to you, repent of their sin. Lord, maybe there's some of us here that need to rededicate our lives to you. I pray that as well this morning. That we return from the, the sins or the habits that we've been caught up with, Lord, and we just turn back to you. We find your forgiveness and strength of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Bless this time of communion, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.